So there was this guy. He was a thief. And he was broken into this home one night, and he's looking for valuables. And he came across a birdcage. When he came into the birdcage, there's a parrot in the cage. And the parrot says, Jesus is watching you. And so he gets a little closer, saying, what in the world? And he sees there's actually a little nameplate on the cage, and it says, John the Baptist. So the thief just says out loud, he just says, what kind of religious nut names their parrot John the Baptist? And the parrot said, the same kind that names their pit bull Jesus. <laughs> well, this morning I want to talk to you a little bit about the real John the Baptist and the real Jesus, who is in fact watching you. Last year we did a whole year focus on the Old Testament. We called it God's Grand Story of the Old Testament. I'm trying to help you really understand how the whole flow goes so you can make sense of it all as you dive in specific verses. You can really make sense of the whole Old Testament. But we're going to spend a lot of time in 2024 looking at the whole story of the New Testament. And it's really easy to divide it. The New Testament is simply this. We have seven parts. We have, number one, Jesus comes. Number two, Jesus ministers. Number three, Jesus lives dies, and lives again. Number four, the church begins. Number five, we have Paul's epistles, his letters to the churches. Number six is we have what we call the general letters or epistles, in other words, other authors, apostles writing to the churches. And number seven is the book of Revelation. And that really is the picture of the New Testament. So last week we started with the genealogy of Jesus as we are in the first section of Jesus Comes. And I want to continue in that section with the coming of Jesus. Now, the first thing we see after the genealogy in the New Testament is there is the introduction to this forerunner of Christ, and his name is John the Baptist. And the story really begins with the fact that Elizabeth, who is John the Baptist's mother, she was old and barren her whole life. And her husband, Zacharias and Elizabeth, weren't able to conceive. So God does something supernatural, enables her to conceive. Let's go ahead and jump in the story in Luke chapter 1, verse 7. It says, but they, Zacharias and Elizabeth, had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. But God supernaturally enables them to conceive, and John the Baptist is now in the womb of pregnant Elizabeth. Now, I want you to note that, that the an angel that appeared to Zacharias to prophesy what was going to happen, and we actually know what the angel prophesied about John the Baptist to his father, Zacharias. Let's jump in and see what he prophesied. Luke 1, verse 15, for he talking about John the Baptist. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
So that's what was prophesied about John the Baptist. Now I want you to understand how this story goes because while Elizabeth is pregnant with John, Mary, who's going to be the mother of Jesus, just had the angel Gabriel come to her and tell her of the supernatural occurrence that she's going to supernaturally by the Holy Spirit conceive in her womb, even though she's a virgin. Of course, this is overwhelming thought for Mary. So young Mary makes her way to much older Elizabeth, who they're related, and, and for some support. And as she gets to Elizabeth, something interesting happens. So I want to read that now. Luke 1, verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Down to verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Now, before we go further in this story, I want to point out today on Sanctity of Life Sunday that what the Bible, what the Word of God says is in the womb of a pregnant woman, the Word of God calls that a baby. Not a lump of tissue, a baby. Now, the Word of God, how do we know the Bible is the Word of God? Jesus said, he's, first of all, Jesus is the only one who's ever risen from the dead, proven he is who he says he was, God come in the flesh. He says of the Old Testament is the Word of God. He promises the writing of the New Testament will be the Word of God by the Holy Spirit coming on the apostles and guiding them as they write. So Jesus says the Bible is the Word of God. And the Word of God says that which, that which is in a pregnant woman's womb is a baby. So for a Christian to say, I believe in Jesus, well, if you believe in Jesus, then you must believe what he says is true. He says the Bible is the Word of God. He says the Old Testament is the Word of God. He promised the New Testament would be the Word of God. So he said, I believe in Jesus, but, I, I'm, pro, but I'm pro-choice. I want you to understand how silly that is. Because if you believe in Jesus, you believe in the Word of God. And the Word of God so simply has told us that what is inside of a pregnant woman is a baby. And so it's really important that we understand that those who say, well, I'm still pro-choice, what are you saying? You're pro-choice. You're saying, do you think a woman should have the right to kill her baby? It's a baby. So John the Baptist comes on the scene just as the angel prophesied. And he was great. In fact, according to Jesus, there is no one greater in history up to this point than John the Baptist. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 11, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, have you ever wondered what made John the Baptist the greatest? What was it about John the, John the Baptist to be so great? Because he had a very short ministry. I mean, once he started ministering in the wilderness, the time he's beheaded is just a very short period of time anywhere from a year to maybe two years. That's it. That's his whole ministry. How is he the greatest? What made him so great? Let's go ahead and see what we can learn from his story. John chapter 1, starting in verse 6, says, There came a man 
sent from God, whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He, John, was not the light, but but came that he might bear witness of the light. Now let's jump down to verse 19 of John 1. And this is the witness of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny. He confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. They said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, they had been sent by the Pharisees. These are the Jewish religious leaders of that time. And they asked him and said, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered and said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John the Baptist is asked a series of questions. And I can imagine some media interviewing him today, how frustrating they would be with his answers. Because they keep trying to get him to say who he is. And the only thing he will say is who he's not. Again, he said, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. John the Baptist knew who he wasn't. By the way, when, he's, and when they asked him, are you the Christ, are you the Messiah, probably most of the people out there that had come to him were thinking he was. I mean, he had some credibility of saying yes to that. But he quickly said, no, I'm not him. Then they asked him, are you Elijah? Now, Malachi chapter 3 and 4 in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, speak of the coming of Elijah before Messiah comes. Jesus actually points out in Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13, that John the Baptist was Elijah if they were willing to accept his ministry. But John 1.11, Jesus points out that they weren't willing to accept him, Jesus, neither were they willing to accept John. Now they ask another question, are you the prophet? They're talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 18 in the Old Testament, the prophet that was to come. Now Peter, Apostle Peter, tells us in Acts chapter 3, verse 22, that that prophet of Deuteronomy 18 is actually Jesus. So again, he says, no, I'm not him. So here's the question, well, who are you? Now remember the earlier passage. By the way, before we read it again, it's interesting that John never even gave them his name. John 1.8, he was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. You know, it's today, it's, it's really different today, I think, in large part of the church, particularly in America. We've got all kinds of churches saying, we're the light. Our church has got it going on. Or pastors, you know, he's the light. You know, he's, this guy's amazing, you know. 
I want you to know uh, that there is no church on this planet that is the light. Jesus is the light. There's no, there's no pastor who's the light. Jesus is the light. I'm not the light. You're not the light. All we are is those pointing to the light, Jesus. It's all about him. It's not about us. And I got to tell you the truth. I've been around a lot of pastors. And a lot of pastors just take their giant ego right into the church with them. It becomes all about them. It's not about them. It's about Jesus. In fact, we signed a covenant in 1996, and we've re-signed it recently with a younger generation of pastors here in Arlington. When we first signed it in 96, we had 100 Christian leaders in Arlington. We signed four points. And those four points, number one was we are here to make Jesus famous in Arlington, not a church and not a pastor. It's so important that we just realize that what makes John the Baptist so great is he knew it wasn't about him. And there's nobody that in all of history that knew it better than John the Baptist. It wasn't about him. It was all about Jesus. Well, who are you then, John? John 1.23, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Just a voice. He doesn't give his name. It's not about him. So then they say, then why are you baptizing? Now, their question should have been, if you are preparing the way of the Lord, then where is he so we can go worship him? That should have been their question. But their question is, well, then why are you baptizing? In other words, well, then what are your credentials to be doing this? You know, it's interesting. He could have said this. John could have said, because he had credentials. He doesn't give them, but he could have. He could have said, don't you know that I am a Levite? That I'm the son of a priest? That I've been in the wilderness for 30 years getting ready just to do this, what I'm doing right now? That I've been anointed by God? I was filled by the Holy Spirit in my mother's womb? I'm a prophet sent by God? He could have said all that, but he didn't say any of that. All he says basically is this. All I do is baptize in water. I mean, the, the implication was big deal. It's a religious act, a preparatory act. But there is one among you who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. One you do not know, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals. By the way, that's an important thing he says because in the first century, a disciple of a rabbi really was supposed to do anything that the, the leader wanted him to do, the rabbi wanted him to do, except... The rabbi was not allowed to ask him to unlatch his sandals. That was too low. That was too low. But John says he's not even worthy to do that for Jesus. That's how low he stills and compares, compares him to Christ. So John knew he wasn't the light, and John didn't try to share the limelight with Jesus. All the light goes on him. He gets all of the glory. That's all we are. We are those pointing to Jesus. It's not about us. It's all about him. So what made John the Baptist so great? I'll tell you what made him so great, real simply, was his humility. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? It's all about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. John the Baptist wasn't thinking of himself at all. 
was all about Jesus, pointing to Jesus. So let's see John at work. What does he do next? John 1, 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak. And they followed Jesus. And that's exactly what John wanted them to do. What's interesting, though, John didn't tell them to follow Jesus. John just pointed out to his disciples, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Now, for Jesus to be able to take away the sins of the world means that he had to be more than just a man. In fact, according to Isaiah 40, he was the Lord God who became flesh, John 1, verse 1 and verse 14. And so John says, and John actually says something about that that makes us understand that he knew that Jesus was, in fact, God becoming flesh. John chapter 1, verse 30, John says this about Jesus. He says, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John the Baptist, you know, was actually born before Jesus. Well, how is John saying he existed before him? Because John understood that he was God come in the flesh. He's, he's eternal God, the Son of God, becoming a man. So Jesus was able to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world because he was the God-man. By the way, every serious believer in the Old Testament understood that the blood of animals could not really take away sin. All the sacrificial system. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 in the New Testament makes this clear. The whole sacrificial system was pointing forward to what would happen one day for the sacrifice for sin. And John the Baptist is saying, and there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Of the world. The Apostle Peter points this out in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 through 20. That you were not ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with, listen to this, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, how could Jesus? The sacrifice, how could he be without sin? He's, 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 you know, he's, if, he, if he's born the ordinary way, he would have to have been born with a sin nature. Remember what Paul said, Romans 5.12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and, through, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. What he's simply saying there is that when Adam and Eve sinned, from that point on, seminally in Adam... The generations are now polluted through him and through all the fathers. There's a pollution. There is something's passed on assembly called especially the sin nature. Passed down. So how is God going to bypass that? Because if Jesus is born of the sin nature, he can't be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A sinner cannot be the solution to other sinners' problems. So God bypasses that by using Mary and the Holy Spirit supernaturally enables her 
to conceive, so Jesus is born without a sin nature, and he also then lives a life without sin. In fact, we're told that, many of you remember the Christmas story, let me just read it again, Luke 1, 30-35, do not be afraid, Mary, angel Gabriel says, for you have found favor with God, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him his name Jesus. He'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, listen to her question, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Jesus is holy, he's without sin, no original sin, no sin nature, and no active sin. Remember Jesus actually said, at one point in John 8, 46, he says, which of you convicts me of sin? Nobody could, because he's not in sin. In fact, 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And that's the reason that he can be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everything in the gospel really shows us about how he could be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist says of him. By the way, that was two shocking things that come out of that statement for a Jew to hear in the first century. That the, that the God-man would die. Not only would he die, he would die like a lamb being slaughtered. That was, that was something that was hard to even comprehend. The God-man, Messiah, would die. Secondly, that his death would benefit not just the Jews, but the whole world, whosoever believes. The God-man was the Jewish Messiah, John 1, 41, but his death would be, take away the sins, John the Baptist says, of the whole world of whoever believes. What's interesting here is what happens next. Again, I want you to notice, John 1, 36 to 37, John looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and then followed Jesus. Isn't that interesting? John never said, you should follow him. John said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is the one who removes sin. He says that in the earshot of two sinners who need their sins removed. So Jesus is the perfect match. The one who takes away sins is the perfect match for sinners. And so they follow him. And by the way, John the Baptist actually takes a role now as a matchmaker. He is the forerunner, getting people prepared for Jesus, but now he just wants to get the bride to the bridegroom. He wants to get as many people just to go to him because John knew it wasn't all about him. He plays the role of a matchmaker much more than the role of a persuader. I think today we tend to think of our role as persuader and, and there are times to you know, have some of that in your conversation. But for the most part, for the most part, we're more matchmakers than we are persuaders. Let me explain a little bit about what I mean by that. When I was in high school, I wasn't a follower of Christ. And I was in a public high school in Louisiana. And we had a, an event in our gymnasium which all the students were required to go to. Public school. All the students were required to go. And there's a guest who is a weightlifter and he... He lifts all this giant amounts of weight, and then he walks to the microphone, says, I get my strength from God, and then he shares the gospel. And I remember just thinking, I remember feeling drawn 
you know, he wasn't trying to persuade us. He's talking about his relationship with Christ, but I felt like I wanted that too. And then there was two young men in our high school. One's name was Dave and one's Dwayne. I remember watching them because they were unashamed of Christ. They carried their Bible out in front of everybody. They led little prayer meetings in public and little gatherings with a guitar, praising Jesus. And there was something about them that made me want to know Christ. Then I went to college, and there's two guys on my college track team that, that both these guys, these two distance runners, they had this role of matchmaker with me. They were constantly, the way they lived, the way they talked about Jesus made me want to know Jesus. And so really our role is more of a matchmaker. Let's see what happens the rest of the story. John 1, 43. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. So here now, Jesus finds Philip, says, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. But Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so now we've got, so Philip encounters Jesus, and he finds that Jesus is the perfect match for him. And so what does he do? He goes and tells Nathaniel because he knows that Jesus will be the perfect match for Nathaniel. So he takes his role as matchmaker. And it goes on and on and on. And, and that's what, it, after I came to know Christ in college, all I wanted to do is, is, is let other people also know that Jesus was the perfect match for them. And we had God do amazing things during that time. In fact, one of the young men that came to Christ at that time went on to become a youth pastor. And about 10 years later, when I was here in Arlington, he came looking for me and found me and began to tell me that I became a youth pastor. And I said, tell me about it. He said, I, I've had the honor of leading over 100 teenagers to Christ. So now he's a matchmaker. And then those, 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 those teenagers that come to know Christ, they're matchmakers. But the truth of the matter is Jesus is the perfect match for your unsaved loved one your unsaved friend, for your unsaved classmate, your unsaved, you know, fellow employee, your unsaved neighbor. Jesus is their perfect match. So we are much more matchmakers than we are persuaders. You know, God really does the heavy lifting on the persuasion part. Let me tell you how God tends to do that. Uh, I've been on a lot of airplanes, and I, and I tend to do this on a regular basis, when the, when the stewardess or the steward is giving the safety announcements before you take off, you know, the seatbelt and the life vest and all that, I like to look around and see if anybody on the whole plane is listening. If one person's even looking at them. And generally, no one's listening. No one's even looking at them. Why is that? It's because I think it's two reasons. One, I think they're thinking, I've heard it all before. Number two, they're thinking nothing's going to happen anyway. But what would happen if that plane at 30,000 feet started to take a nosedive? Same plane, same stewardess, same people. And she gets up now and gives the same information. Do you think people are listening? Absolutely. Everybody's glued to the safety announcements. Well, here's what I think that God tends to do. As we are matchmakers, God can so work the circumstances of someone's life, an unsaved loved one, to where they finally realize they have a need 
God can cause their life. And he tends to do this because pain is sometimes the only thing that gets anyone's attention. God causes their life to take a nosedive. And now they need him. And so be a matchmaker. Be, a, be available around them when something's, when God's finally got their attention. And also be close enough in, into, with their lives to be able to share your relationship with Jesus so they, because Jesus is the perfect match for them. And be a matchmaker. I want to close in a prayer that's a little bit different. Uh, I want us to pray for lost loved ones, lost friends, lost neighbors, co-workers, classmates. But I want us to pray just a moment that God would get their attention. Now, that, that tends to be oftentimes a painful situation. So I don't want them to have pain. Well, there's a lot worse pain they're headed for if they don't get this. And so I want you to stand, if you wouldn't mind, please stand. And I want you just to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you just now to think of that, that lost loved one, friend, family member, whoever it is. And in your mind's eye now, just picture them. And Father, you're seeing in all, all of our hearts right now, all these different faces, these people that we're asking, Lord, for you to work. Today, Lord, we're asking, we, you, you, you are the only one who knows what it would take to get their attention. And Lord, even though we really don't want them to have pain, Lord, we don't want them to miss out on the most important decision of their life. It's having their sins taken away by the one who can do it, only one who can do it. So we're asking you today, Lord, would you do whatever it takes now? And that person who we're looking at right now, we see him in our mind's eye, would you do whatever it takes, Lord, to get their attention? And, let them, and just that sense of neediness for you. And Lord, would you use us and other matchmakers to be available, Lord, to just talk about our relationship with you how you're not only the perfect match for us, you're the perfect match for them. And would you cause this to be, Lord, a time where you're really pulling the nets in. Lord, you're really reaping a harvest among those that we pray for. Some that are on our minds right now, we pray for decades. We're asking, Lord, would you bring it to a head now that they might know the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And also, Lord, we pray for Unreached people groups, Lord, who've never had the privilege and opportunity to know this truth about Jesus. Would you raise up the laborers and send for the harvest, forth the harvest? Would you tend to raise up those here at Grace, Lord, even through our ministry launch? Would you continue to send those out that they could know the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because there is no other way? So, Lord, we pray that you would use us this week to be the light of the world, Lord, and, and continue to point to you. Lord, as the one that they need, Lord, point to you as the one true light in the name of Jesus. Amen.